We're reading this morning from um, 1 Peter chapter 5, which is on uh, page 1223 of the Church Bible. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, for I am regarded as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly encouraging you to testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Now, let's get into this talk about this last bit of 1 Peter. Um, whether you're here for the first time today, whether you're here every week and you've heard of 1 Peter, let's, let, let's think about why this, why this passage is so helpful for all of us. Whether you love Jesus or whether you don't know where you are with him. And I want to start it off today by saying I have a regret about Ethan, my youngest son, getting older. When he was younger, it was much, much easier to find out what I was getting for Christmas. All I'd have to say was, oh, there's presents under the tree. And he goes, yeah, I'm not telling you what they are. Okay, mate, don't tell me. And then five minutes later, he'll blurt it out. It was great. Oh, and then he'd get a little bit older and he'd say, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what the presents are, Dad. Okay, mate, no worries. Oh, but it looks like this. Is it that? No. Oh, well, is it this? Yeah, yeah, it's that. And it was easy. It was great. But now that he's eight, and this morning, look at all the presents under the tree, mate. Oh, yeah. What's going on there? They're for you. Great. 
oh, what, what, what are they? I'm not going to tell you. Okay, nothing. And I said, so you're going to tell me what they are? I'm not going to tell you what they are, he said. And I said, but, and then Amy, that was actually Amy's presence to me, he said, well, present to me, and he said, I'm, I said, Amy won't mind. She will kill me, Dad. <laughs> He's got wiser. Ethan is now standing firm in the giving away of the present secrets, and it's disappointing. <laughs> One Peter is about standing firm. And that's where he ends the letter. That followers of Jesus hold the line. They won't give in to what they hold to be true about Jesus despite what's going on around them. And to give you the context to remind you or to fill you in, all of 1 Peter has been about him talking from chapter 1, verse 1. And if you've got a Bible there, it's helpful to have it in front of you. You can run out the back and grab one if you want. I don't care if you get up. Um, But all of 1 Peter, from the beginning, he says, to the exiles out out of Jerusalem who've had to leave Jerusalem and are scattered all around Asia Minor because... Uh, because the, of the rule of Rome, they are now suffering in all sorts of ways of following Jesus. And this whole book, we, if you've noticed, every week we can't kind of get away from suffering. He keeps on bringing it up because that's the deal. This is what they face time and time again, suffering. And so in chapter 1, he brings it up. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, suffer for uh, doing what is good. And then even in uh, last week, when Peter opened up uh, uh, chapter uh, 4 for us, let me get, get that uh, for you. In chapter 4, verse 19, we read, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do what is good. So we're thinking about how you stand firm, that is, I'm facing all this rubbish in my life and, and, and in uh, Peter's context, because I say I follow Jesus, how can I continue to follow him when things are going so badly? And so we've titled the series Living, that way, Living Between Two Worlds. Right? Living Between Two Worlds, because as Christians, we're kind of in this world that isn't following Jesus, but we're kind of waiting for the new world, the new creation. How do we think it through? And so the rest of this book, and uh, Chapter 5 is about living in light of this and giving us the big picture. So in your outlines there in the book, as if you've got, got them there, you'll see there's three, there's three main points. There's the point about... I'm just going to grab some water. There's the point about leaders are shepherds. And we'll see why that's important in light of suffering. The priority of humility for leaders and for everyone. And then lastly... It all gets to the point of standing firm is the best and only option. So let's have a think about this a little bit further. See, in the context of suffering, you think about your leaders. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Now, uh, I'm not going to spend heaps of time on this bit today because I really want to uh, get into that. And what I've discovered in 1 Peter, I feel like if after Christmas we started another series on 1 Peter, I could preach another five sermons 
and they'll be totally new because there's so much depth to 1 Peter. That's the thing I've kind of felt like, I feel like in every book of the Bible, but particularly I've found, oh man, I'm leaving this we miss, because it's so valuable. So I just want to give us an idea of what he's talking about leaders here. And actually in the new year, when we launch our, um, our year in February, we'll be talking about how we think about leadership at, um, at Grove. And so we'll, we'll actually possibly even come back to this chapter or similar ones like it. But what he's saying here, he says, to the elders among you. And so the way we see elders and the way we see um, uh, overseers is another word used and, it, and it, it's there um, h- hidden away in verse, in verse 3, um, is that elders and overseers are used interchangeably in the New Testament to talk about God's people. Elders clearly has the connotation of being older, the older leader. That's where we get the word presbyter from. It's where we get Presbyterian church from. Overseers are those who have oversight. That's pretty clever, right? For overseers to mean oversight. And that's where we get that fancy word episkopos, which is, you know, bishop, Anglican um, uh, church in which um, I'm an ordained Anglican minister in, comes from that. Now, I don't want to get into all the details of that, uh, particularly today, but I have no, no doubt in my um, looking through the New Testament and how they're used, these words are used interchangeably with, for different reasons to highlight the leaders of God's people. When talking about elders, it's clearly talking about the older, those uh, ones who highlighting their leadership as older. And when saying overseers, it's, it's more focusing on oversight. And so the elders are the ones who are office bearers as shepherds. They have oversight, is what he's saying in this passage. And what he's saying is, is that if you are to be an elder amongst God's people, you care for them. That's what we see very clearly. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Now, I'm my kind of title that we use, not that I love titles, as you know, but across the network, we call our... our uh, church leaders, the ministers of the church, pastors. The word pastor is shepherd. It comes, that's where it comes from. We are shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And so in many ways, the use of, um, in this sense, the use of elder is when you are looking after, overseeing, when someone has, give, in, in authority, given, appointed you the responsibility of looking after someone else, overse- overseeing them, you are, in that sense, operating as an elder. So, uh, if I've asked someone to take on board uh, looking after the kids' ministry, like Amanda, in that sense, she's operating as an elder of the children. In the Trinity Network, all our churches together, all of the, the senior pastors uh, operating as overseers of the, all the churches in the network, we operate as elders in that sense. Now, I am sure, depending on your background, there'll be lots of um, how I feel about this and different offices and things like that. I'm not going into those details today as we'll think about it, but I have no doubt that the way the idea of elder and office bearer works in the New Testament, and Peter's talking about it here, is that if you're an elder... You have a responsibility to part of God's flock. You watch over them. But do you notice you don't watch over them 
because you've been forced to. You watch over them because you're willing. So if Jack has spent five years with me in ministry in some way, he's done a ministry apprenticeship, I'd like to think you've willingly done it and that, oh, no one else has made you do it. Right? That's fair? That's a good just check. I thought I'd check. I haven't forced you, uh, Steamer, into doing MAP, have I? Good. Are you wanting to do it? Okay. You see? Some of us go, oh, I don't want to do that. We shouldn't manipulate and force people to take responsibility for leading. But Peter's saying, maybe you should be willing instead. It's like a rebuke to you to think about if you like that. And you don't do it for dishonest gain. You don't do it, you're eager to, you're eager to serve. See, there's no sense, and here's the main point I want to bring out of this bit. There is no sense, if you're a leader in any way, you domineer, that you dominate, that you lord it over others. That's not what God's people, leaders, should be like. To the elders among you, and there were many elders amongst the people in Asia Minor, paid, not paid, who were responsible for God's flock, they could not operate that way. Why? Well, verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. How do you know what an example to the flock is? Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, as the ultimate leader, is your model for leadership. And he gave his life. So if you in any way have any kind of responsibility in, in this church or in any ministry, if you do it in a domineering kind of way, can I ask you to do one thing? Get out now, resign straight away, sort out your character before you go back into it. Because God's people need their leaders not to be lording it over, but to be like the chief shepherd Jesus. And leaders should not demand respect. Leaders should be respected. But they shouldn't have to demand it. Jesus didn't demand respect. Instead, he went to the cross in our place. And we who follow him give him all honour, respect and praise because of it. And so, what's interesting, he goes on and says, so... When the chief shepherd appears, verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, so it's kind of like youngers, it's not like the young, you know, the youngest, it's the, the, those who are not old, right? The younger, you, in the same way, submit yourselves to your elders. That is, those that are leading you to follow Jesus, you willingly give them the honour and respect to do that. So I'm not actually going to tell you today to respect me because I don't think that's what the passage is telling me to. I think what the passage is saying is that anyone who leads you, you need to think about how you respond to them if they're uh, leading you in Christ. Why? Because our second point that we'll get to in a moment, can you see in verse 5, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humility is the key. 
And it's going to be the key for dealing with suffering. So if you're going to deal with suffering in your life, you need to have your leaders being humble and those who you respond to, you need to stop making it about yourself and being humble. And so the thing is, it's talking about elders and youngers because there is an element, right, of age to it. That's why it's elders. It's not, it's not just an idea of office bearer. Older. And if you think about society, general terms, most people in charge of things are older than the people that they're in charge of. Right? That, that, that's the way, the way uh, things work. And so in this, it's, uh, we need to think about older people are often in charge. But it's not a rule. It's not a legalistic rule. And we don't think about, well, how old do you need to be before you can take on this office? Okay? Now, for example... Peter has got many, many more years, I won't emphasise the many, Peter, but many more years in ministry than me, okay? He, um, actually in the dynamics of church and in the way we operate, I'm the one who's an elder over him and he actually is amazingly brilliant at humbly um, being part of our ministry team um, and and giving me the honour and respect as the leader. When I'm in a position like Peter, I hope I do it like he has. He's, he's older than me. It's, un, it's unusual in some senses. But it's not super unusual because Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, let me pull it up, up to you, he said um, uh, in verse 12, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. That is, if you're younger in leadership, that's because you're expressing the maturity of an elder leader, you see. Our, I think we've got another example in our church. Uh, last year, Jake, what community group did you run? Oh, yeah. <laughs> who, was in your, who was in your community? Julie and John. Yeah, they're a little bit older than you, aren't they? Not much. <laughs> a little bit. Maybe a little bit more. They're, they're clearly older than you, but in that group, you were the one running the group. I've given you the charge of being the elder in that group as part of your training and, and in a sense they would honour and respect you in that even though that room had so much more wisdom and knowledge than you, to be fair, right? That's true, right? You see how it works? It's about the character. It's about how you, uh, how you present uh, this humility and clearly the older people, that's why I think we need to as younger people that are, who are here and I'm talking age younger, you need to think about your elders and those that are older than you and see the godly ones and the mature ones and show them respect and honour and actually learn from them. This is a thing in society we've totally lost more and more. Younger people don't think they need to do that anymore. It, it's, just, it's just a fact of how society has moved in the last 20 or 30 years and it seeps into the church. And we're losing something gold in that. And actually, as I think about our church and, and lots of people who aren't here and some of you here today, there are many people older than you, five years older than you, ten years older than you, and a few more that you could look at and go, I actually could actually give them more honour and respect and I could actually grow more if I um, did community more with them. There you go, that's, a, that's enough about thinking about elders and leaders and then, as I said, we'll get back to the bit more next year. But the reason I wanted to highlight that for a bit is because... That model helps us deal with the suffering we face. Um, And now, if if you're not really with me, here's the best bit in the passage, I think. 
You see, what we see is that for all of us, why should I follow Jesus if I'm thinking about it? Why do I keep following Jesus? Is because we see what God is like and how he helps us deal with the challenges of the devil. And so the second point is that it's the priority of humility. Have a look at this passage with me and let's see what God is like and why we respond in humility. In verse 6 we read, Humble yourselves therefore, so as the shepherds and, and the leaders are humbling themselves, everyone humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all, not some, all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then down in verse 11, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What do we see? We see that God is powerful. God's mighty hand. God does not lose control. No matter what it looks like, God is the Lord of all, the creator of all. He is in charge. Nothing is out of his uh, kind of view. He's absolute dealing with it. He's completely sovereign, if you like. That is so important. Because sometimes we start to think, well, maybe God is a bit toothless. Maybe he is, because this is what I'm facing. Peter's telling people, the, the, all these Christians that are suffering, humble yourself because God is in charge. He will lift you up. And the second thing though, maybe God is in control of everything, Maybe he is super powerful and the charge that often uh, others want to say is, yeah, he is like that, but you know what? He doesn't care about you. Have you ever had those thoughts? That God doesn't care about you? We probably have it at a moment. He says in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The God of the universe, the one who sustains everything, the one who has everything in his hand, who can manage all all the billions of people on this earth and give them all breath, who knows every single thought they're having all the time at every moment throughout history, cares for you. That's pretty significant, I think. So you've got a God in control and he cares. That's a pretty good combo. And he has all power in verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. It's not just for a time. It's not, it's, it's kind of like compare that to our governments of today who we give power to. How do we give them power? Well, we are fortunate enough to give them power through elections where we say, you can be in charge, but we're going to let the other group keep on haranguing you and trying to bust you for all the things you do wrong. And then when we're sick of you, we're going to vote someone else in and we're not happy with them. So you've only got a period of time to do that. And we have all these checks and balances, isn't it? And we know it doesn't work super well but it works well on one level because we don't want our government do we to have ultimate power it's a great system in a fallen world but with a god who's in control of everything who cares for us and he and is loving that's not a good system we want him to have all control and that is what he has so, the potential of humbling ourselves before God makes more sense. But also, how do we think about it more when we see the enemy? 
Look at verse 8. Be alert and sober mind and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. I don't know if you have a fascination with the devil or not. There's a very good chance. People love talking about the devil out there in, in the world. Not if you ask them to talk about God or the devil, you're going to get a conversation about the devil more than you're going to get about God, I bet. So many of our TV shows are built around the idea of a God or a devil, things like that, um, in all sorts of different ways. And want to ask questions about how is he real, how does he come into existence, is he there or whatever. You know, Christians shouldn't actually be obsessed with Satan. Have you thought about that? We're warned about him, but we should not be obsessed with him. Instead, we should think about him like we see here. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil is never your friend. He is never going to do what's best for you. Instead, he's like you at the zoo falling into a cage of massive roaring lions. You're going to get eaten to shreds. That's how he thinks. That's what we need to know about him. That's how we need to understand him. He prowls around like a roaring lion, a lion. But he's a liar. He lies to convince us. You know, Jesse Tree, when we first did it with the kids, the, the beginning of the story, and when the snake appears and he tricks Adam and Eve into believing him. That's his modus operandi. I'm just going to change things and convince the world that they don't need God. And I'll take, do it in any means. Oh, Australia, fantastic. All I will do is send all the people over to the Grove shopping centre to buy all their presents and to think about what they need right now and they won't consider God. I'll get them caught up in all of their financial mortgage woes. I'll get them caught up in all the needs, the desire to be happy, the, the desire to have all these things now and then they won't even worry about God. And I see other people around the world and they don't worry about those things so I'll actually be a bit more aggressive and appear a bit more uh, viciously towards them and scare them into thinking that they need they need to abandon God. He'll do any means. He's not our friend. But at the same time, we also need to remember that we can resist him, as Peter says here. And in the book of James, he says, resist him and he will flee. God does not leave us there to be devoured. Actually, God says, you actually deal with Satan and say, no, he will flee. Because the reality is, he's a little bit like He's a little bit like uh, my, my daughter Chloe. I don't know if you've ever seen Chloe with her panda outfit, with her panda head. A lot of you have seen Chloe. With the, Jason, you've got one of those outfits as well, haven't you? What, what's your one? The big outfit that you got given? A, oh, it's a lion. I should have got you to bring it today. That would be great. Um, those, I don't know if you've seen those outfits and the lion, the lion head that you put on or the panda head. Chloe's got one of those. Satan has one of those outfits. His outer outfit is a roaring lion prowling around, willing to devour us. I've just got these images now of Jason doing that up in front of me. Anyway, um, but that's, that's, 
we can mock this because that's the best way to deal with Satan, actually, just to mock his ridiculousness. And he's got, that's his outer exterior, prowling around, willing to devour us. But when he pulls that hat off, that, the helmet of the roaring lion, do you know what you see? Just a little pussycat. He's got no teeth. Who is actually like the annoying cat around our house who keeps on coming in and annoying my dog and runs away at any moment of Charlie being anywhere or any human seeing them, they run away. You tell Satan to flee, he's got nothing. That's actually what he's like. He just lies and pretends. It's helpful for us to see that because you know what? All of the suffering we face actually comes from him. But the problem we have, the problem we have with one Peter, the problem I reckon I have personally is I live in Australia and I have a totally distorted view of what Christian suffering is actually like and what it's been like for centuries because we don't really get much of it. Even as the, the kind of tide is changing in many ways, we don't have any concept of it. Did you know that more martyrs, those who, for the reasons of following Jesus, were killed in the last century alone than all of the other centuries combined? In the last century? Millions have died because they declare the name of Jesus or they preach in his name and it's happening right now. And we're sitting in this amazing venue that's too big, or despite the screen, too big and too, too for us. And we have absolute comfort that we face very, very little suffering. And yet, the reality is, the reality that Peter knows, the reality that those he's writing to know, is that actually, the suffering is great and real. Peter knows the suffering firsthand. He experienced He experienced the suffering of Jesus on the cross and before that he denied it. He's experienced the persecution in Jerusalem that God's people faced. He's now seeing the people all around Asia Minor facing persecution under Roman rule for following Jesus and he's trying to help them see it. And the challenge for you and I is to open our eyes up and realise we only have a little snippet of it. It's hard to imagine. And when we do suffer, it's kind of mostly mild. You, tell, you talk to someone about it and they mock you a little bit or things like that. I think when we have the Bible picture and the reality of what's going on around us, you know what our response to suffering should be if we face it? I think we should just toughen up. I think when I face it personally, I think that's actually what I need to do when I seek to avoid a conversation or something like that. Like, are you serious? I think that's probably a helpful thing to think about. There are many nations, many Muslim nations, communist nations, where you can't meet like we are right now around the world. Where there are missionaries who can't even tell people where they are because their lives are in in threat. When we expect this suffering, I know it's Uh, Satan's modus operandi we can deal with life a whole lot better 
And so then we can see how we respond in this passage. Have a look at it. He says, so humble yourselves. The priority of humility in in, uh, the Christian life is so important because that is what our Lord Jesus is like. Have you thought about humility in your life? Humble yourselves. You don't make yourselves out to be number one. Humility means not putting yourself up on a pedestal, actually kind of putting yourself down and bringing up others. Humble yourselves before God. He goes on to say, so if you're going to humble yourself before God, you know what you can do? If the picture of God that I mentioned before is true, look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him. That is of deep importance for us, friends, to understand. All of us have great anxieties in our life. One in four Australians in the Western, uh, one in four Australians actually have real anxiety at some point in their life. 40%, I didn't realize this is so high, 40%, nearly half of of Australians at some point will have at least one panic attack. Whether you are one in the four or you're the three of the four who just finds the things that stress you out, where do you place your stresses or whether you're actually really struggling with, uh, uh, real illness, As many of you are, not because I know, but because it's the reality. We can cast all our anxieties on Him. You know, when it comes to casting our anxieties on Him, when we think about how do we help people deal with anxieties, let me pull up, I I, I forgot to pull it up before I came down the front, but I'm going to pull it up anyway on my phone. This picture... Um, and the picture in my photos, don't mind me, because I think this is really interesting. And hopefully it is for you, because it's taken me a while to get it. Um, where's my photos? Because I took this screenshot just before I was coming uh, in today of how do we help people who are dealing with anxiety? What do we do? Well, this is a little infograph that I saw from Beyond Blue. Um, with lots of great advice. Let me share them with you. Take them out for coffee. Let them choose a movie. This is ways to be there for someone. Make them a care package. Give them a hug. Oh, that's a silly one. Um, <laughs> um, thanks. They're just writing them a note, telling them thanks for being there. Um, listen to them. Give them help. Listen to them. Help them do stuff. Write lists out for them. Bring them food. They're all really helpful things to do, right? They're good. When I was an occupational therapist working in mental health, they're the kind of strategies we try and help people with. They're not bad. But where do they get you ultimately? If you don't cast all your anxieties on God, you throw them to Him, you're still left with stresses that ultimately aren't going to be resolved into all eternity. They're useful, but they will fail. We need to be humble and cast our, uh, cast our uh, anxieties on Him. And also, in the way of being humble, is that we're alert and sober-minded. We're prepared. Now, I've told some of you 
that there's one reason I like winter, almost only one. I don't have to iron shirts anymore because I can just wear jumpers, maybe a collar, and I can have crushed shirts. That's the best thing about winter, right? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of winter, obviously. Um, today, I thought, you beauty, I don't have to iron a shirt because it's cold enough, I'll just leave my jumper on. But I was so humid and, and uh, hot in here, I just thought, I don't care, I'm just going to wear a crushed shirt, and every, I, don't, I don't care because I didn't iron my shirt. I wasn't prepared for it to be as warm as it actually is in here. That is not how we deal with the reality of the devil. We don't deal with the devil with displaying crushed shirts. We deal with the devil by being prepared for him to want to destroy us and knowing that we can resist him in God. Being alert and sober-minded. And so we finally get to the end. I've gone way too long today, but I'm just going to finish up with the whole end of this letter because I think this summarises the whole point. And if you're wondering what one thing to take away is today, this is the one thing I want you to take away, particularly if you're not sure where you are with God. The third point, standing firm is the best and only option. You see in verse uh, 8, he says, you resist him, you stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, what I just told you about around the world. We stand firm. We're where Ethan is now when it comes to me in presence. I'm still going to have a crack, see if he breaks. But we can't break when it comes to our relationship with God. We stand firm because of the faith we have. Faith is not a religious word. It means trust. That's what it means. It's simple. You're trusting in the chair you're sitting in now. You stand firm in your trust that Jesus died for you And he restores you and gives you life again. That's what it says in this passage, doesn't it? In verse 10. And the God of all grace, he gives us something freely, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. He's going to restore you because he does it. He himself. What does he do? What has Peter been saying before? He came and died in our place. He has done everything. Don't for a moment think, I've got to deal with my anxieties and then God will be okay with me. No, no, no. You cast them on him because he's going to restore you. Am I right with God? Do I know that I'm a Christian? Do I know I'm I'm a bad person? I've done so many things wrong. I keep on sliding back to the things that I used to do that I know I shouldn't do. He himself will restore you. If you stand firm, you do not swerve from believing Jesus has died for you and given you life. Everything will be restored into the new world. We're living between the two worlds now, but there's going to be a time when there's only one. When we're with Jesus forever. We can truly stand firm. We have knowledge of what God has done for us. So we look at suffering and all of a sudden we think, this really still does just really kind of suck. I hate it. I don't know how to process it. I don't even understand why it's happening. But I know Jesus has died for me. 
I know that this is happening everywhere around the world, that actually my suffering is inconsiderate, yeah, insignificant in many ways to what's happening to my brothers and sisters in all parts of the world, in the Middle East and in Africa and all other parts of the world, even in Australia compared to what I'm facing right now. And with that understanding, I just trust in Jesus. Standing firm in Jesus is your best and only option. Can I encourage you, if you're wondering where you are with God or you're moving back and forth, you're not sure what you think, to get through all the fogginess of what you may or may not know and just deal with this question. Do I think Jesus died for me? Did he do it because, questions, there's a few, did he die for me? Does he care for me? And do I trust in that? If you say yes to that and you continue it, you're standing firm and you can know you are with him and you will be restored into all eternity. That is it. You can make that decision today. And for all of us, we never ever move beyond this. We will never ever preach in this church anything other than this. We just look at it from different angles. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to stand firm? There are four points at the end of, of your outline, which I'm not going into, but I think they summarise why we stand firm. Because we always remember that Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is the elder of elders, the overseer of overseers, the shepherd of shepherds. So we care for the other world. We change our view of suffering and we remember where we are now only lasts for a moment. It might seem like an eternity, but it's a blip on your eternal radar. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we have looked at one Peter and seen time and time again that you encourage us to cast all our anxieties on you in light of our suffering, to trust in your Son because of the eternal home waiting for us. Give us that heart right now until Jesus returns. Amen.